Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because they anchor us in something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us, everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning. The reading this morning is from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, friends. I'm Brian McWhite, and I don't have much to say by way of introduction other than to say that I miss your faces. My kids miss your faces. We miss seeing you and being seen by you. 
We miss the sound of your voices. We miss the smell of the sanctuary and the taste of the Eucharist and the feel of your hugs. And we hope that you're healthy and well. And I need to make sure to wish my good friend Claire Wyatt a happy birthday. Believe me, if this was in person, I would absolutely do something to embarrass Claire. Maybe an all-play question centered around her. Um, tell us your favorite embarrassing story about Claire or something. I'm not sure, but since I'm not going to get the satisfaction of seeing her all squirming uncomfortable in her pew, I'm just going to say, happy birthday, pal. <laughs> my message this morning is going to meander a little bit. I'm going to toss out some thoughts and ideas and not actually feel any particular need to justify them or defend them or maybe even explain them, to be honest with you. And as I move through this passage, I think it'll become more apparent why that is. But reading through well-worn, uh, familiar passages, for me, often sparks Let's just, let's just say it, it sparks many more questions these days for me than it does um, answers. And to tell you the truth, that, that, that tends to be my experience with the Bible now. Uh, when I read through the Bible, it sparks many more questions for me than it does conclusions. And uh, I rarely feel the need to come to conclusions. I really enjoy observing and um, imagining and seeing where... Uh, the text takes my thoughts and prayers and meditations. So at the very least this morning, I just want to walk through this passage with you and introduce you to some of my questions. That's really my only goal this morning is to introduce you to some of my questions. The beginning of Exodus chapter 3 is a very familiar text to most of us. Whether we grew up in the church reading the Bible or whether we're old enough to remember Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, I'm just on the brink of old enough to remember watching that movie with my mom. Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, the, I mean, just the whitest Moses you've ever seen, big, well-managed beard that would make any hipster jealous. Um, so maybe that was your sort of intro to the Exodus story, or maybe you're more the Prince of Egypt generation, the animated film with uh, Jeff Goldblum, and Jeff Goldblum just turns everything that he touches to gold. Um, <laughs> or maybe, maybe you're just familiar with this passage because most people hear of this passage at some point or another. The burning bush narrative is, is very well known. And, and as the story goes, Moses has fled into Egypt after having killed an Egyptian slave master who had been beating a Hebrew slave. And Pharaoh finds out about this and wants to kill Moses. And Moses flees to the land of Midian. And long story short, he marries a Midianite woman named Zipporah. And they settle down and they have a son. And one day, Moses is out tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And he comes to Mount Sinai, which the text calls the mountain of God. Now, keep in mind that at this point, there is no Mount Sinai. There's no, this isn't a famous place at all. Moses is just tending his sheep and happens to come upon this mountain. And Moses sees this bush that is engulfed in flames. And in one of the most understated reactions of, in, in all of scripture, <laughs> Moses says to himself, this is amazing. Why isn't this bush burning up? I must go see it. So he sees this burning bush, this bush that's on fire, but it's, it's not being consumed by the fire. And as he approaches, of course, God calls to him out of the bush, out of the fire, and says, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. 
I am the God. Now listen, verse 6 here is actually pretty important for us, for, for one of the questions I want to ask. He says, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. And God proceeds to explain to Moses that God has, he has seen, he has heard, and he has come down. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this, but these are three just such interesting verbs to me. God has seen, whatever that means, what does it mean for an all-seeing, omnipotent God to see something in particular? But God has seen, whatever that means, the oppression of God's people in Egypt and has heard whatever that means for an all-hearing, all-knowing God to hear something in particular, he has heard their cries of distress and he has come down, whatever that means, to rescue them and lead them out of Egypt into their own land. And in verse 9, it says, Look, God says, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now, the transition from verse 9 to verse 10 is one of my favorite transitions in all of Scripture because of just how shocking and bewildering it must have been to Moses himself. Because God is explaining that he's seen the oppression of his people, and Moses is probably saying to himself, yes, yes, me too, I've seen it too. I mean, Moses has been in the thick of this. He knows what it's like in Egypt. And God has heard their cries of distress, and Moses is saying, I've heard them too. I've heard them too. They break my heart. And God says that God has come down to rescue them and lead them out of Egypt. And Moses must be saying, yes, yes, praise God, rescue them, rescue your people. Verse 9, look, God says, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Moses is saying in his heart, I've seen it too, God, I've seen it. I've witnessed it myself. It's horrible. Verse 10, now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of, uh, you must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. What now? <laughs> Moses had to have been saying, hold on, I, I was with you, God, until that last bit. I was with you on the whole You've seen their oppression, and you've heard their cries of distress, and I definitely was tracking with you on the, uh, the I've come down to rescue them thing. I, in this case being you, you know, God. So you just lost me a little bit on that part where you said that this rescue that you're going to do, that, that I'm actually going to do that? That's the thing I'm just... I'm sure I misunderstood because, you know, I have a job. Like I, I attend the sheep for Jethro. So you probably remember that Moses protests against God five times in chapters three and four. He tries to refuse God's call five times. He really, really doesn't want this job. And God answers his refusal five times. But the two protests from Moses that we have in our text this morning are particularly interesting to me. I'm going to talk a little bit about the first one, but then I want to focus on Moses' second protest to God, or his second question to God. 
His first protest, his first refusal, is one that most of us are familiar with if we know this story. It comes from a place of humility or maybe a place of fear. Moses says, who am I? Who, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who, who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Like, who, who am I? I'm, I'm completely unqualified for this. I, I don't have the resume for this job. It's not in my wheelhouse at all. Or maybe to push, put, put it in a little more like Christianese terminology, he might have been saying, I don't feel called to this. I don't really feel at peace about this, God. <laughs> Which, if you want to get me on a, a soapbox, Let's talk about how many times in the Bible someone attempts to discern God's will by looking inside themselves to see whether or not they have a piece about it. Because I've counted all the times that people decide things in the Bible that way and the answer is exactly zero. Which is so encouraging to me actually because I don't think I've ever felt a piece about anything I thought God might be leading me to do, including preaching this sermon. And the fact that no one in the Bible ever makes decisions on the basis of whether or not they feel a peace about it just kind of makes me feel a little more normal. <laughs> so Moses clearly doesn't feel a peace about this call. He feels completely unqualified. Most of us know that in one of his later protests to God in chapter 4, he says, well, what about, what about my mouth? What, what about the fact that I'm, quote, slow of speech and tongue? You're asking me to speak to Pharaoh the most powerful figure in the world at this time, as far as Moses knew, and I actually have a speech impediment. What about that? It'd be like God saying to me, I want you to go to the Olympics and win a sprint against Usain Bolt for my people. And I'd be like, what about the fact that I'm like, kind of uh, carrying a little bit of extra weight right now. My physical did not go well this year and I've never been that fast to begin with. You know I get calf cramps, God. And God says, who made your waistline and your calves? <laughs> I'm not sure how comforting that would be to me. But that's essentially what God says to Moses. He says, who made your mouth? Who makes people deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. And even then, Moses still isn't having it. In chapter 4, verse 13, Moses' response literally is, please send someone else. <laughs> At this point, he's begging God, please just send anybody else. So Moses doesn't want this job. But as he starts to wrap his head around the fact that, that this is happening, that there might actually be, not be a choice here. He's probably not going to feel a peace or a call to this, and he's still going to do it. As he starts to, as that reality starts to settle in, he asks God another question. And uh, this is the question that's most interesting to me this morning. Verse 13, but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Now, before we get to God's strange answer, let's not miss the strange question. Have you ever noticed how strange this question is? I feel like this is one of those texts that we've heard so many times, many of us, if we grew up in the church, we've heard so many times that we don't notice how bizarre this question is. 
it seems like God has already identified himself pretty clearly back in verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Right? That's a familiar formula. We see, we hear that that sort of description of God in, throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It says when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Moses knows exactly who this is. He knows who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. He knows the stories. They've been passed down from generation to generation. And he knows them well enough that when God tells Moses who he is, Moses covers his face out of fear and reverence. So Moses knows exactly who this is. The people of Israel know exactly who this God is. So isn't this a strange question? Moses apparently doesn't know what God's name and presumably the people of Israel don't know what God's name is. So why would it matter if God had told Moses, oh, uh, my name's Doug. Tell them that Doug sent you. It's not like they're going to say, oh yeah, Doug, we love Doug. Tell us what he had to say. They don't know this name. So here's my first all-play question, first and only all-play question this morning. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? What is that question about? Why ask that question? I'm so looking forward to seeing what kind of answers came out of that, if any. It's hard to say for sure, but one of the most plausible answers is found in remembering that according to the story, the Hebrews have been in slavery in Egypt for generations. And by this time, the Hebrews, I mean, Hebrew children have grown up, you know, been born, grown up, and died without having known anything but Egypt at this point. And one of the things they know by this point is that the gods of Egypt all have specific descriptive names. The Egyptians were really into naming their gods and oftentimes the names uh, had a lot to do with that god's power or that god's magic. One scholar writes, in the context of Egyptian magic, knowing the true name of a person or a god meant that one could control or coerce him or at the very least understand his true essence. So I wonder if Moses anticipates that the people who have been in Egypt their whole lives and who have come to learn how Egyptian gods work, I wonder if he anticipates that they will want to be able to call on or perhaps control or even coerce this God, this power that has promised to deliver them. Almost like they want to take matters into their own hands and use this God for their agenda, their way of doing this. God's answer to Moses' question is one of the most strange, perplexing, and widely debated statements in the entire Bible. No overstatement there. God says that his name is Ayeh, Asher, Ayeh. What does that mean? Some of our Bibles translate it, I am that I am, or I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. Jewish scholars seem to gravitate toward the idea of he who causes to be, or he who is. But the fact of the matter is that no one who has worked in Bible translation 
or works in ancient Hebrew or holds doctorates in Semitic languages, no one is very confident about what this phrase means. It doesn't participate, it doesn't obey the laws of Hebrew grammar and how names tend to work in the Hebrew language. So no one's really sure what it means. The ancient rabbinic scholars didn't know what it means. Certainly the ancient Hebrews wouldn't have known what it meant. Moses doesn't even say, got it, makes sense, great name. He, he just kind of passes it by. It's almost like he hears the answer. I'm, and I'm guessing here, I'm filling in, but it almost like, it's almost like he hears the answer and doesn't really comprehend it, just hears the words and, and just moves on. He doesn't even speak again. Moses didn't even speak again until chapter 4 when he says, okay, so what happens if they don't believe me or listen to me? After all, if the Hebrews hadn't heard the name, either, why would they believe him? Now, maybe this is supposed to be the spot in the sermon where I tell you what I think it means. And then I proceed to, to, to preach the rest of the sermon on the basis of what I've decided that this name means. I, I think that's how sermons on this text are supposed to go. But here's my question. And this is a question that comes to me again and again, and it has for some time now. My question is, why does it matter so much to us? Why? It seems to me that Christians, particularly Christians in the Western world, have been so, I don't think it's too strong of a word to say obsessed, so obsessed about defining exactly who and what God is. I wonder how we have become so obsessed about getting it right, getting our knowledge of God right. And what I wonder is, what if God actually resists sharp definition of God's self? What if God actually sees our desire to have clear definitions, clear lines, clear boundaries, God is this and not this, God is that and not that, and resists it because God knows what it tends to lead to? Moses and the Israelites likely want to know exactly what God's name is so that they can use God's name, so that they can take advantage of God's name, so that they can even weaponize God's name. And God says, nope, that's not how this works. It's not the kind of God I am. I may do something for my people, but I'm never going to allow my people to use my name for their agenda of the moment. In fact, it seems to me that all throughout the story of the Bible, God deliberately defies expectations and characterizations of himself. I, I, I watch the story of the exile into Babylon. I see that God's people thought at one time that he was this invincible protector who would ensure that they would always be safe in God's promised land forever. Until... The temple was destroyed and the people were all carried off into exile in Babylon. And when the people finally returned from Babylon, they were sure that God would reestablish the glory of the temple, the kingdom of Israel, and the dynasty of King David would unfold. And it just didn't work that way. And then comes the Messiah. Everyone knew for certain what the Messiah was supposed to be. They'd all read the scriptures, they'd all read their Bibles. 
and they all expected the Messiah to be this great conquering military figure who would overthrow the oppressive powers of Rome and liberate the Jewish people once and for all. And Jesus shows up and he's got no horses, he's got no tanks, he's got no army. Doesn't even seem to try to overthrow Rome. God didn't look and act at all how people thought God would. And where are we now? Well, now we're in this spot where most of, most of us believe that God looks like Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, what's Jesus Christ exactly? Do we have a, do we have a consensus on that? It seems like some people tend to think of Jesus as a brown Palestinian prophetic revolutionary who was mainly interested in subverting Roman rule and got himself killed for it. Seems like some people think Jesus is more of a spiritual, mystical, hipster figure with a Charlton Heston beard and the sandals and, and is mainly interested in peace and loving the marginalized, right? Seems like some people think of Jesus more like a transcendent cosmic ruler who is ruling over us all and coming again one day to judge the living and the dead and to dispense perfect justice. And it seems like some people think Jesus is actually more of like a white guy who is into football and the American flag and fighter jets and pickup trucks and freedom. And as if to put an exclamation point on the end of it, how does the Bible end? It ends with the story of Revelation, which, if there is a more dizzying and bewildering and strange portrait of Jesus, and who he is than in the grand finale that is the book of Revelation. It seems like, have you ever asked this question? It seems like if he really wanted to, God could have left us with a lot more clarity and precision and definition about who God is. And instead, we're sort of left to see these different portraits of God throughout Scripture with different characteristics and different behaviors, and some of them don't quite fit well with the others, and we're sort of piecing together a mosaic of what God is like. So why did God do it that way? Of course, I don't know, but it at least leads me to wonder if God just isn't interested in doing that. I wonder if God tends to prefer fuzzy pictures to clear pictures. I wonder if God knows that allowing clear boundaries to be drawn around himself tends to allow people to draw clear boundaries among themselves. It seems as though the more precisely, the more boldly we draw lines around God, who he is, the more boldly we're willing to draw lines around who we are and therefore who they are, who the others are. The more willing we are to say, God is this and not that, the more willing we are to say, we are in and they are out. The more willing we are to say, this idea about God is good and that idea about God is bad, the more willing we are to say, we are good and they are bad. And how's that working out for us? I know that there's all kinds of yeah buts coming to mind for you. They're, they're coming to my mind too. 
But I don't think there's any shortage of people who would be willing to open the Bible and tell you all about what God is and what God's not and who God is for and who God's against. So I'm just going to leave that to them. I'm so much more interested in reading the Bible and imagining all that God could be than I am in reading the Bible and defining for myself, much less others, what God must be. I'm so much more interested in reading the Bible and imagining all that Jesus could be to us than I am in reading the Bible and defining what Jesus must be or what he's for or what he's against exactly. I'm so much more interested in reading the Bible and imagining all that love can be than I am in reading the Bible and determining what love can and can't be. Richard Rohr writes that God is always bigger than the boxes we build for God, so we should not waste too much time protecting the boxes. Whether the boxes are our personal agenda or our moral convictions or our political views, our theological system, Christian orthodoxy, or the Bible itself, I think it's important to remember that God will be who God will be. Maybe that was God's name all along. I will be who I will be. Maybe it's a call to imagine a bigger God, a greater God, a God who is so far beyond our boxes and categories that our boxes and categories end up looking just a little bit silly. Maybe it's a call to examine ourselves and the reasons why we want to have a God that can be put in a box, a God who has clear lines and definitions and boundaries. Because is it really the case that when we get those clear lines and definitions and we've got our theology all squared away, is it really the case that when that happens, we have a tighter connection to God? Because I've been in the depths of theological research and theological reading and theological wondering. And that's never helped to foster a deeper connection to God for me. Could it be that we all tend to look for a God who can neatly fit into our own personal, political, or theological comfort zone? And I wonder what we miss in our own experience of God when we insist that God fit into the box that we've built for God. I wonder how much greater and bigger and more honest and real our experience of God could be when we discard our boxes. Let's pray. God, you are the God who is beyond our imagination. You are the God that is beyond our categories. You are the God who is beyond our conception. And yet you are still the God who sees, who hears, who draws near, who comes down. And we are grateful for that and we pray that you would spark our imaginations to open our eyes wider to see the God who you are. The God of the possible, not the small God that we sometimes imagine. We're grateful for each other. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your 
presence in our lives. And we ask that your love would fill us and flow out into all those around us. We ask it in your name. Amen. Time and time again throughout the Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscove.org.